everyone welcome back to the early education show we're here with episode 42 it's great to be back with you i'm liam and i'm an early childhood teacher working in operations in the act and i'm joined uh by leanne gibbs a leadership and policy expert hi leanne how are you going hello liam i'm good how are you i'm good and it's just the two of us this week uh lisa's taking a very well deserved break She's, she's taken off, she's left us, but she's having a wonderful holiday, which is fantastic. And speaking of less well-deserved breaks, which is the, 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 the amazing pun is going to be evident pretty soon, but um, you need to maybe just fill in the listeners on what happened to you over the last week, Leanne. Oh, well, it's always good to know um, what your podcasters have done, but I've managed to fall off a ladder, which all people over 50 have to do at some stage in their <laughs> life and break a, a bone or two in, an, in my ankle, so... You know, these things happen as we get older, but the good news is I'm healing very well, <laughs> even even better than most 50-year-olds would. And we're, we're, everyone has to be incredibly impressed by your dedication to the show, Leanne, that you've, you've, you've fronted up to do, the, to do the podcast, even with, you know, pretty grievously injured. Most people will take a week off. Well, it is a, an action sport, isn't it? That's this, right. Uh, this podcast. So, yeah, I, I, it is incredible dedication, I must say. Well, that's all right. Well, I mean, I don't know how you guys do it, but I spend the entire thing just stomping around, waving my hands, and, and um, particularly if we're talking about Jobs for Families Package, it's a very physically demanding episode. It's a cardio talk- activity. Exactly. That's right. So, well done. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we'll be just be the two of us, and we are going to be talking after we've done the news list about Children's Book Week. So, we're as this episode is released, we'll sort of be towards the tail end of Children's Book Week, which is always a fantastic, fun uh, experience for the early childhood education sector and a really great opportunity to celebrate literacy and reading and books and children's authors. So we've got a bit of a, a fun topic planned for tonight that we'll be doing. A, a, but a fun and serious topic. A fun and serious Reading topic. is very serious, isn't a- it? Absolutely. Very important and serious activity. Absolutely. Except when it's not. Hmm. <laughs> well, we'll we'll give an insight into that tonight, I'm sure. We will. I'm looking forward to it. But we'll start with a few things that have come up in the news during the week. Um, and I'm going to bring the first two. And the first one uh, is an article from The Australian, which is about uh, sort of early childhood becoming enmeshed in this big discussion about Australia Day and whether... Uh, people, councils, centres, schools, early childhood centres should be celebrating Australia Day. And I wanted to highlight this one particularly uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, I think it's a really fascinating discussion. I think it's a particularly uh, fascinating one for educators and professionals who are interested in social justice and ethical approaches to uh, to working in with, with young children, that this is it's a bit of a tangled, treacherous topic and a lot of people have come... Um, sort of, uh, you know, the, the, with a lot of flack for, for daring to bring it up. And we we should probably table here, you know, for the, we, we're obviously, uh, we've had you know, Red Ruby Scarlet on the show before, and we've we've talked about the Social Justice and Early Childhood Conference. They do some amazing work about promoting social justice for young children. And they particularly received quite a bit of uh, media attention from the, the usual figures in the right-wing press uh, for uh, sort of daring to promote and discuss this topic. And I think we just wanted to... Uh, 
highlight, well, uh, we have sort of agreed between the three of us in email, we're going to tackle this as a separate topic down the track, hopefully in the next couple of episodes. And I think we're basically going to call a wise newsletter that's so scared of children's rights. But <laughs> the reaction from conservative and right-wing press on this stuff, when we dare to possibly think that maybe in the first five years are the most important time to be having discussions about tolerance and respect and, and equal rights, uh, that, you know, a group that work so hard to promote that is sort of targeted and has copped quite a bit of flack. So I think we just wanted to, I think this was just a sort of a, a, a podcast hug for the social justice in early childhood group. They do fantastic work and, um, and I hope this doesn't, and I know it won't because I know the people involved, but I, you know, I, I'm sure this won't silence the, their voices and the work they do. Hats off to, to them and to the councils as well in um, Victoria that are, that have, you know, made these decisions around um, Australia Day and are actually bringing the conversation to the forefront because we've got to have this conversation. We just have to. Yeah. And um, I think there, there was some fantastic media on this this week with some box pops from from the community, which we're all, you know, definitely in favour of, of thinking about Australia Day in an alternative way. Absolutely. Um, and then my other one is, and I still, I still do not have, we're up to episode 42 and I still don't have a sound effect for this. <laughs> I was hoping that you might have one ready for tonight. I know. Yeah. I'm really sorry. I've got to work on it, people. It's appalling that this still has not happened, but we do have a, a, a rorting alert. This is rort alert, people. So family daycare back in the, uh, back in the news again. And I think this, this pretty much every time this has come up, we basically say this is what the government uses when they're not having such a good time in other areas. So I think given the citizenship, Issues, the uh, the same sex marriage debacle. It's not a huge shock that we're suddenly cl- again clamping down on family daycare uh, providers and issuing press releases at ten paces. But um, yeah, we'll we'll link to this one. I don't have a huge amount to add. It's the exact same story that's been coming on. Um, you know, for, for the last particularly two years. I think this has been a particular focus. But um, the only thing I really wanted to bring up was just to, to get your view, Leanne, as a, as, a, as a denizen of this state, that New South Wales seems to have a particularly uh, bad rap in this. They're at about half of the half of the uh, rorting claims seem to come from, from New South Wales. What's, what's going on over the border there? We're a bigger state, Liam. Oh, right. I keep forgetting the ACT is not that big. We just seem to be the centre of, you know, everything at the moment. Yes. Well, I think we're a bigger state. We've got more children um, and there was a a radical expansion of family daycare. And so I think this is, you know, the the pullback on on the rorting um, is probably sort of the percentage is higher in New South Wales because we had more in the first place. And um, it did... I guess it did really represent an easy way to expand childcare and it also opened the door, as we know, to um, the rorts <laughs> and now the, the you know great, great attempts being made to pull that back now. So, yes, I think that's what we're seeing reflected in those numbers. Yeah, and I think what we I think we pretty much say this every time we run this exact same story is that rorting is bad and it, just, <laughs> it shouldn't be allowed. But what is always fascinating about these stories is the federal government and the, the, the current education minister, Simon Birmingham, is always delights in his press release of sort of having a big go at the states, but sort of fails to identify that the the overall body in in, in sort of charge and who could pretty successfully clamp down on uh, what well, so the specific issue here is claiming subsidies for children that don't exist uh, actually sits within the CCMS system, which sits within the federal government. So it's actually at the end of the day down to down to him and his pin his uh, mates in the federal government. But that part always seems to be mysteriously vanished during the press release. Well, that uh, yeah, out. and I think it's that partnership, isn't it, that needs to happen that that doesn't and 
I guess the I mean Kate Washington makes that point that they shouldn't have gained approval in in the first place and this is this is true and I know that there's been great efforts made um, within New South Wales actually to change the approach that they have to approvals yeah but it, you just wonder why it came so late why I know you would you would you would assume that this issue had only sort of emerged in the last two years but it's been going on for so much longer than that yes. And all that wonderful money that could have been dedicated to early childhood in, in a, you know, definitely um, more legal ways would have been wonderful. Yeah. Um, well, I think I'll have to maybe – I feel the ghost of Lisa Bryant pointing at me and insisting I make this point. I think she says it was – I think it's very unlikely that if they'd saved that money, they would have reinvested it back in the system. Well, that's our ideal world. That's the we ideal can, world. But, we can but hope that that's what would have happened, but clearly it wasn't going to anyway. <laughs> All right. And um, you've got two stories to bring us as well, Leanne. Would you want to run us through those ones? Um, yeah, look, at there. I guess there are a couple of human interest stories, and one of them is uh, little Ewan – Aboriginal preschool director Leah Sutherland is about to retire and you might sort of think, oh, well, why would we be focusing on a story that's, you know, down the south coast in a tiny little preschool in on the south coast? But I guess this is one of the great advocacy stories and it's about um, people coming together as a community and helping a little preschool, which is an Aboriginal preschool, thrive. Uh, it was set to close I, I can't remember how many times this preschool was at risk of closure. And um, Leah Sutherland has really done an amazing job of working with the community to keep it open and working with the department to keep it open. And it has been a wonderful um, service within that community and obviously has provided early childhood education, particularly to the Aboriginal community in that area. So I think it was through these very um, determined efforts of Leah and the community that it remained open. And it's a win, I suppose, for advocacy and that this centre is open, it's full, and now they're seeking a new director and uh, she'll be leaving there in December. So I just wanted to highlight it as one of the those local story, you know, local success stories. Wonderful. It's always good to have an advocacy win. I think I pass on my congratulations to, to Leah for her amazing work. And I think I'm, I'm reading in the article there as I bring it up now that it's um, – Leah says she's proud it's the last Aboriginal managed preschool on the far south coast. Yeah, I think maybe that's a bit of a, a, a difficult quote that they've given her there. It is the last Aboriginal managed preschool. I think that's a tragedy personally. Yeah. And – and I know, Sarah, we always circle back to this, but that will certainly not be helped by the Jobs for Families package, given the uh, dramatic, uh, well, I think the most generous term you could use would be change to funding. The probably more accurate term would be uh, removal of funding for Aboriginal uh, child and family centres, particularly under the budget-based funded program. Mm. But, yeah, yeah, I think it's you know great we celebrate these these sort of leaders in the in the sector when they mm. um, when they move on to to their well-earned retirement and yeah. We, we wish all this and hopefully her advocacy voice will be – she'll have more time for advocacy now. And it's a preschool that does <laughs> so much more than than just early childhood education, if that wasn't enough. Yeah. It's got a lot of community programs. And I do think that River Cottage Australia even um, filmed an episode there. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes, Ooh. because they built them a little veggie garden. Oh, nice. <laughs> yes. Lovely. Yeah, Beautiful. And then what's the what's the last story for us this week, Leanne? Um, well, it's actually a very long article, but I and it's a bit difficult to get through. But I would love people to read it because it 
um, focuses on a refugee camp that's been operating in Montenegro since 1994. And these places you never know anything about. But it's mostly Roma and Balkan Egyptian inhabitants and says that it lives, they live in a appalling conditions there. But one of the um, things that has happened is that there's a very, very big focus on um, education on, and on providing those those children with education and particularly um, books and, and reading sessions for them. So it's a, an interesting, the whole article is quite interesting, but it really does, um, I suppose, signify that education is, is what actually uplifts people and provides them with opportunities. Absolutely. And then I suppose, you know, it's, it's kind of mind boggling that there, there has to have been a child refugee uh, place there since 1994. Mm, mm. Yeah. Yes. It's a bit, it's a kind of a bit, it's a bit sad in reading it um, because these are things that I think we just never know about. And then, we, you know, you can't believe that people could live in those appalling conditions and still really stateless in many ways. Yeah. Um, but it's, there are some high points in it. So if you've got a few minutes, take your time to read it. Definitely. I'd add my recommendation as well. All right. Well, we've, uh, we've, we've slashed through the news list this week, but there's always uh, more to bring you next week, of course. So we will be back with um, the sort of highlights from the week beforehand. But uh, stay with us for a very quick musical break, and then we'll be back with our main topic for the night. All right, welcome back to the show. So, yes, as we said in the intro, uh, it's Children's Book Week this week, which is always one of my favourite times of the year. I think in our house, it's pretty much Children's Book Week every single day. We've got a, <laughs> a, a house of voracious, voracious readers. Uh, but, you know, for as, as a national sort of focus on the importance of literacy and particularly pre-literacy in, in the birth to five space, it's a really – it's one of those things that I think you can pretty much um, – there aren't too many services that don't celebrate it or acknowledge it in some way, shape or form. It's one of those big weeks on the calendar. So, we wanted to make sure as it sort of wraps up as this episode is released that we sort of touched on it and used it as an opportunity to – uh, to celebrate and acknowledge and, and sort of bring our own focus to that. So, uh, what we're going to do tonight is just we're going we're to have a little bit quick chat about get just our thoughts on the importance of literacy and reading uh, in early childhood education. But then uh, we wanted to have a bit of a, an opportunity to to have a bit of fun as well. So, we're going to share – each of us are going to share two things with you. We're going to share a favourite children's author and why and why we think they're so fantastic and why we think that, I guess, early childhood centres should be stocked to the gills with their, with their books – uh, and then recommend a particular book to educators and early child education professionals and teachers uh, that we just think should be on every educator's bookshelf and, and I guess go through that why as well. So, uh, so you'll go away with a few recommendations apart from our normal ones we do at the end of the show, but uh, I'm looking forward to, I, I could talk about Oh, I could talk about early childhood, early childhood education to us blue in the mouth. Probably the second rung on that would be talking about books and reading. I can't think of anything better to do. No, not at all. And it, it is um, who hasn't spent time in that coveted area of the book, the book area or the book corner <laughs> uh, in an early childhood setting. Like, I think that had to be one of my absolute favourite spots when I was um, actually working in, in services. It, it brings back very many warm memories, I must say. Well, I've got well, – well, I'm remembering going through uh, going through primary school and high school, but that's where all the cool kids were hanging out in the library. That's where I was. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's where – 
That's where everyone was hanging out. All the all the cool kids. That's where they were. That's right, isn't it, Leanne? Absolutely. Libraries. I think you know what libraries are fantastic. Librarians. I'm absolutely in love with librarians. I think they're the abs- the just the best people in the world. And um, I think you're right. And I think you still need to keep believing that that's where the cool kids hang out. Absolutely, I cho- I choose to believe that. But um, and look, we we we, you know, this is a topic that we could spend you know hours and hours and hours on, which is always a risk with this podcast. But we won't we won't spend a huge a huge amount of time on it. But I think um, you know, Leanne, what's you know for you in terms of you know your your, your work you've in overseeing and working with educators and professionals working in in early childhood, how important is it that you know uh, books and reading and literacy is sort of acknowledged and called out as part of programming and planning in early childhood centres? Well, I don't know. I, I, From my perspective, books and reading literacy is the number one um, – I believe it's the number one focus because I think that it actually connects to every aspect of children's development and it engages children in a lifelong um, love, I think, when they can connect with books and when they can connect with their teachers and educators over books. And I think that the, the some of the work that I remember doing when I was a college student, when I was, you know, at the Institute of Early Childhood Studies, I think it was uh, even Newtown Nursery School Teachers College in the very early days, was this incredible instruction about how to select a book, how to read a book to a child and and what were good books and what were books that you actually just left on the shelf and didn't touch and the sorts of opportunities that books offered to children, the rhythm of the words, the the, um, symbolic representation and the fact that language in books and, and reading and print is really the basis of every form of communication that we have and when children go into um, school with their early literacy taken care of not reading not learning to read but their early literacy then they can you know rocket their way through school in reading and number and all of those things but it is just that engagement in a book which really supports children's um, social and emotional development as well. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Leanne, because I think sometimes we get a bit tripped up with, you know, children reading a certain amount of words by the time they're five or, you know, meeting a certain metric by the time, you know, they start school. But that, exactly that, that idea that you're instilling a love of reading and a love of uh, mm. engaging with a book is, uh, it is one of the biggest gifts you can, I think you can give children and, uh, you know, not to, I might get slightly personal, I don't do this very often, but uh, it's, you know, one of the things I regularly uh, thank my parents for doing growing up. And I know I've joked on the podcast before about my slight obsession with uh, <laughs> Doctor Who for the period of time, but um, I actually, I, oh God, this is going to get into the weeds, but Doctor Who wasn't on television when I was growing up. It was, it'd been, you know, cancelled in the 80s and only come back now. Doctor Who for me growing up was the books. So there were the, all these books that sort of, uh, adapted all the old stories so Doctor Who was a literacy experience for me and uh, I voraciously devoured those and other books I didn't just read Doctor Who I promise but and that's why you connect so much with it when it's in I think you so. know in this sort of <laughs> audio visual form because but you've got this great love of it as a story I did but that but that was 
was a was an, an in for me for the love of reading itself as the books were you know were fantastic and so exciting but my parents could have very easily at that point gone well that's not proper books to read or you need to read it but they just did they encouraged me to read anything and everything I wanted and was regularly found you know sort of asleep in bed with a with a book over my <laughs> over my face and um and it, it, it honestly it was probably the biggest gift my parents gave me and my brother is that we just there was and there was books you know just throughout our house where we were, he had memberships to the library and it absolutely I, I draw a direct connection from that to my you know ability to to read textbooks and 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 policy documents now but it, it but it, there's a direct connection between a loving reading and then becoming you know better at writing and and the the greater exposure to to different concepts and different things and I'm I'm really clear now because as you know as a as, as an early childhood educator and an early childhood teacher who has children, it's very easy to fall in traps and about, you know, doing the right thing and doing the wrong thing, you know, and I would love it if, uh, you know, my children were purely reading some of the, you know, the, the particularly the author I'm going to give as my recommendation. But, uh-huh. but um, oh, I can't wait. <laughs> but, but there's all that symbolic representation and there's the rhythm of the words. I love yeah. that. You know, poetry for children is fantastic in that it it creates yeah that books that rhyme. They're just and, so, yeah. so fantastic. The Gruffalo. But what I was going to say is, was you know, and my my daughter who's six is now you know already just a voracious reader and you know regularly reads you know just on the couch by herself. But you know, when she was sort of two and three, she was obsessed with Peppa Pig, and <laughs> as with probably every other two or three year old in Australia. But we had all these Peppa Pig books, and we had to read them over and over and over again. And I was sick to bloody death of Peppa. Pig. Pig by the end of the day, I could probably read half of them, but we we didn't. We you know we we did think well, nation needs to be reading, you know, books by someone else, and these are just you know pretty you know basic adaptations of TV episodes. But that but not but just just the process and the engagement and the and the and the the experience of reading with us and meant that that has now blossomed into you know reading a whole range of other things and uh, that. And, and that time, that time of connection as well that you have, yeah, exactly, with it and read with a child, yeah. and, and which is just is- as important with educators as with families as well. Mm. It's an important mm. relationship for children to develop with educators that there's that special time when you can sit on a couch or a nice spot or a reading corner in a centre and and give you know you know one child or a small group of children um, that really positive experience. Which is you know my other you know, thing for, for educators is, you know, the, which is why I don't think the, the big group times with the big book, I don't think they're as fantastic. And I don't think children get as much out of them because I think it is a reading is a connective experience. I think in that age, mm-hmm. it should be done really, you know, one-to-one is ideal. I know that's not always possible in in, in, uh, in early childhood centers, but even just small groups where there can be back and forth, where there can be questions, where there can be engagement uh, is some of the best things you can do for children. And sometimes the first connection that a child makes when they um, start at a centre is that's that period where they connect with other children in the in the book corner and it's kind of a safe and secure place or it's a place that they start their yeah. day in because it's quiet. Yeah, absolutely. Um, or sometimes even that place when, you know, a child is having trouble settling, there's two places, the book, the book corner <laughs> and the goldfish. Oh yes, that's right. Yeah. The children. So there's there's so much value in the spaces that we share those books with children and um, the actual books themselves and what happens in those and and books outside. Who doesn't love reading a book out under a tree? Oh, lovely. Oh, in Australia's weather, beautiful. Oh, yes. Yeah, and I think. 
The only other thing I'd highlight in terms of for ed- for people working directly with children is just that it's actually called out in the national quality standard that that idea of um, having literacy rich environments, which uh, is a really interesting concept. So it means not just having uh, lots of books around, which, are, which, which absolutely every early childhood centre, including including particularly the infant spaces, should be chock a block with books. It should be the most resourced uh, thing you have in your spaces, uh, but also having lots of different examples of different kinds of literacy as well. So posters and magazines and and exposing children to that different way that yeah that that you know written language is used in different ways so signs um you know banners and and a whole range of other stuff where children can see how language is used in different contexts and different mm. spaces is it's specifically called out in the national quality standard because it's a really important uh, next step for children to develop those skills that will absolutely serve them really well in primary and secondary and onwards and i think that um the translating of story into things like drama and and those sorts of things are also, you know, great opportunities to lay down um, literacy and the memory of books and the memory of stories and sequencing. Look, we could go on for hours, couldn't we? But I do remember the most wonderful um, woman, Kathy Griffith, who taught our our class at uh, Newtown Nursery School Teachers College how to share a book with a child yeah. or with a small group of children. And it was not about performance, which I think sometimes we can think it is about performing a book for yeah. a group, but it's actually about sharing that, engaging children and, and really talking through concepts and ideas and questions and, and, you know, it's that full learning experience for everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Well, let's get on to the, uh, to the sort of the surprise selection part because neither of us know what we selected. So we had that thing. We've done, we did this <laughs> a bit last year. We didn't check, did we? We didn't check. Well, we had yeah. this, we did this a few times last year with a couple of topics where we had these things we were bringing and we were always slightly nervous that we picked the same thing. I, 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 I doubt we have. I think we've, I think we've got some slightly different ideas, but Leanna, I, I want you to, to tell me, to tell the listeners about the text message you sent me about two, two hours before we started recording because we had the deal where we we're going to select one author. And uh, what was your view on that <laughs> because we approached the deadline for the recording? Well, yes, and I think that you were – when I sent my text message, you thought maybe I was pulling out of tonight because of my terrible injury, which is really not that terrible. <laughs> but the text message I sent to you was, Liam, crisis, I can't narrow it down to one author, I have four, <laughs> which was – the instruction was that we needed to select one author and I just could not do it. <laughs> so I think we decided you were going to provide a few runners-up and then give us your, your, your number one pick. So did you want to yeah. run us through I, so, your runners-up so first? I will, I'll, I'll be quick because I know that I'm I'm working against the rules. But I did, you know, the great thing is that my children are, are young adults, but we still maintain our um, bookshelf for children. And it's actually not in case children come into the house. It's so that everybody can <laughs> And ah. still read them. Oh, that's so <laughs> lovely. And it is because we have much loved books and books that even bring tears to the eyes of oh. my um, of, of my children. And so I'll quickly go through the ones before I get to number one. Alison Lester has always been one of my favourites yeah. with children, my own family children, just because the representation of it is just so charming. Um, Anthony Brown is an author who wrote a number of books like My Dad and um, my absolute favourite of all time is Piggy Book for its um, feminist themes (laughs) 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 because this family just completely misbehaves and (laughs) – 
the mother calls them out as pigs. And then she leaves and slowly they turn into pigs. And when she comes back, they they squeal at her, please stay, we love you, you know. And she says, that's okay, I'll, I'll only stay if you guys do a bit, a bit more around the house and uh, so long as I can fix the car. So it's a really, it's a wonderful sort of feminist, um, feminist uh, book, that one. Babette Cole, who sadly um, passed away last year, and she's amazing. She wrote things like Princess Smarty Pants. Again, I'm going for the feminist themes in in that. And the illustrations in all of these books, I I just adore them. They they really are wonderful. I'm really going to be naughty and say Percy Trezise did some beautiful books. And I actually found out, I thought he was an Aboriginal author, and I've just found out he isn't, which has really challenged my thinking around um, authorship of books. so that's interesting. There's one that one of my children who's just left the country and I'm crying, who, every time he read this, it brought tears to his eyes, the man who loved boxes. So it's oh, – look, it's a beautiful story and it's by Stephen Michael King, so I would encourage people to go and read that. All right. Now, Liam, I'm sorry. That was my um, – but now I'm going to come to my number one. Excellent. My very, very favourite and it did take a long time to get to that. And – I have chosen as my favourite author, Bob Graham. Oh, excellent choice. Okay, so... Love Bob Graham. Yeah, and I think the reason why I love Bob Graham is because his books are so beautiful to read, but I think what... Um, you know, when I was looking at his sort of background and history, I loved the description that was given of him, which, or about his work, which is that Bob Graham goes to the heart of children's experiences, creating gentle dramas from familiar situations. He creates an instantly recognisable world within which children immediately feel secure. And I think that uh, one of the things that his books offer is hope. I love his stories. Probably my favourite is um, Spirit of Hope, which is about a family whose house is under threat from a four-lane highway um, being built. And and it's a beautiful story, and I'm not going to finish it because I want you to go and look at it if you haven't looked at it. And also Rose meets Mr. Wintergarten because I think (laughs) it it shows the power of transformation and the power of um, personal connection in relationships. And I feel quite emotional talking about these books because they are really beautiful books that actually, I think, um, really highlight the good things that we are as humans. And and I think they do do make me feel secure. I I actually love those books. I will probably (laughs) take some to bed tonight and read them. So that's me that's so a fantastic I, choice well no I, 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 I want to quickly talk about your choice because I think it's it's brilliant I think there's a couple of things he's he's been so prolific so I think and and been around for quite a long period of time I've really quickly just brought up spin info on him while you were chatting and he's been basically publishing since the early 80s so I think it'd be one of those ones where he'd be so connected with so many generations of children um and he's and it, and it reminded me that I remember reading um, when I first started working in early childhood. You know how there's just some books that got read over and over again? Um, How to Heal a Broken Wing was a really popular one uh, in the centre I worked at at the time. I vividly remember just reading that one over and over again to a particular group of children in the preschool room. And it is – there's a – there's a, I'm, I'm struggling to articulate it because I think they they are so affecting children's books. It's really hard to sort of pin down. But there's a – 
gentleness or something to Bob Graham. There's there's yeah. the, his approach to his his respect for children comes through, but I think it's also a view of children as quite um, innocence, not the word, but children as upholders of rights and and yes. upholders of others' rights. He he yeah. really comes through from Bob. You're actually that's a really good point um, because I I agree with you about that, Liam. They are, but they're upholders of rights in their own way. They're not. Yeah. They're not sort of. They're not given power by people. They have power, and um, and they take it on themselves to do wonderful things, really yeah. wonderful things. And he did actually win um, Picture Book of the Year this year. Sorry, I just oh, um, remembered that. Congratulations! With book, yeah, with a book called Rain, he Ooh. didn't do the pictures though. He did the text, so I don't oh. know whether somebody else's. But it looks like his kind of interpretation. So yes, yeah, because yeah. his illustrations are very striking as well. You know them straight as soon as you see them. You know that's that's Bob Graham, Ooh, the little yeah. dots for eyes. That's a fair. Well, a, a round of applause, Leanne. That's a fantastic choice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for indulging me. <laughs> well, because now you've done that, I'm going to do the same thing. So I'm going to oh, do a good. few runners up because I, I had I had mercilessly called it down to one because I'm a hard headed individual. But now you've opened the floodgates for a few. Oh, you so. set the rules, so I guess you. Have to <laughs> it's that. all right. I can change them at a moment's notice, and I have. Uh, so a couple of ones I want to highlight um, is Morris Sendak. Uh, so people would obviously most know him from uh, Where the Wild Things Are, but he's also written some fantastic ones. Uh, uh, such as in the night kitchen uh, is 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 a particular favourite of mine, uh, but he he's it, it's very hard, another one. It's very hard. I'm losing all my articulation tonight because they 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 I think affect you, don't they? They affect you, and there's also something there's also something about you know in terms of you know using that sort of crude term picture books. The interplay of the illustrations and the written word makes it really hard to articulate what affects you because it's not just the written word; it's also the the layout and the presentation of the book, but his his approach to um, to children's imagination is is just incredible. I can remember my parents reading where the wild things are to me, but also he's just he's he and unfortunately he passed away about three or four years ago. But he is an, a fascinating character. He's this grumpy, crotchety old man, and he famously said um, he doesn't write children's books. He writes books. Um, that that children just happen to love, but he if he if it's worth googling him, particularly on YouTube, and just seeing some of the interviews because he is not your typical idea of a children's author. He's this very crankety, crotchety old man, and particularly and, and has, seems to have a particular dislike for interviewers. So anyone who's too ah. happy to talk to him, they they get in lots of trouble. <laughs> That's great, isn't it? Because that comes through in his books as well. Doesn't Absolutely, it? yeah, it does. Um, one of the other ones uh, I wanted to to highlight. Um, and it's one of the ones that we have a lot of in 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 our house is Julia Donaldson. So uh, mm. the uh, the very very popular books I think of the last sort of five to ten years. So the Gruffalo, obviously the Gruffalo's Child, Room on the Broom, uh, Stickman. These are hugely popular in our house. I don't think at the moment my three year old son basically has Room on the Broom on repeat. I can recite that entire book from from memory, but um. That's when that's what you were talking about earlier, Leanne, with that rhyming. The the mm. her writing style is just it, it begs to be read in a certain way and to be yeah. engaged with and to be explored. Uh, she and particularly her collaboration with Axel Schaefer, the illustrator. That those all if you basically if it's a Julia Donaldson and Axel Schaefer book, it is an abs- it is a guaranteed hit. It, it- 
goes off the shelf into your house. It is pretty much there. We've we're we're exploring snail on the whale at the moment. The snail on the whale, sorry, which is a very popular one. But um, even the titles have got that beautiful rhythm that kind of fill up your mouth, don't they? They're fantastic. They're wonderful. Um, I think I had a I had a third runner up, and it's uh, it's escaped me now. But that's all right. There are. There's a way it was. It was a very hard thing to to go down to one, but I think it's one of those things. Though. Once I once I I knew what it was always going to be. I just had to had to circle around it. So the the number one pick for me, and I think every one of his books should be in every single early childhood centre is Australian author Sean Tan. Oh yes, yeah, and. Uh, Probably most well known for the arrival, uh, or either the arrival, or the rabbits. I want to talk about the arrival quickly. So the arrival is uh, this. It is firstly, it is just a beautiful book in of itself, and um, it was the first thing I ever bought for my first child, Annabelle, before she was born. We had I had the arrival bought and on the bookshelf. It is it is a stunningly beautiful book, but it has it has no words. It's entirely drawn, and it's entirely drawn in black and white. Uh, he's a, he's a remarkable illustrator, uh, but it tells this incredibly powerful and moving story of a of a. Uh, father that leaves his family and goes overseas uh what appears to be for work or they're and they're also fleeing uh he's a refugee essentially fleeing a really terrible situation and and his struggle about adapting and, and coming to a new environment but it's told in this really uh sort of magical and imaginative way where there are you know these sort of half glimpse monsters and and dragons and it's 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 incredibly hard to describe if you've read it you'll know exactly what i'm talking about and will be nodding your head and probably halfway to tears as i am already about how affecting that story is but yeah, it's incredibly powerful and it's that's one of those things where you know i was talking about just having pictures and and sharing that yeah. story it's the conversation that you have with Absolutely. that story that's- and it it's a fantastic introduction to sort of principles of social justice and inclusion and, uh, and people, you know, and, and other cultures. It is, it, it's a really, because there's no words that it, 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 you have to sort of engage and discuss it with children. You talk about why, why they have to leave, where they're going, why is he traveling so far away? Why, 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 you know, why is his wife and child sad? Um, why is he unable to understand what's going on? It is a, it, 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 it has a very deep connection with people, but, um, he's written a whole range of books and they're all fantastic. The Red Tree, um, is incredibly amazing. The Lost Thing is great. And, and Sean Tan won an award. They, they did a short film animated version of it and he won, he won an Oscar for that. I'm pretty sure it was an Oscar. Yes. Oh, right. An Academy Award. Um, I, I did struggle a bit with one of his, which was, ooh. is it Summer? Uh, what's oh, it? the rules of Summer. Yeah, I love I, it. We've got that one as well. Yeah, do you, yeah. I, I I have had some challenges in reading that. With They're children. very complex, so they are mm. incredibly open to different interpretations and different meanings. They're not. They are not simple stories at all. Rules of Summer is probably. His, I think is his most recent one. Although he's he published a more adult focused book of uh, fairy tales, but his most recent sort of picture book was Rules of Summer. Um, yeah. They are, but they. But I quite like that. They invite discussion and they invite questions. <laughs> Yeah, and I, it was only me that was having problems, the five-year-old who I was reading it to, because I had to read it like five or six times to him. So it really wasn't – it was my problem. That's <laughs> right. He's going, this. Leanne, this is simple. What are you, what are you so confused about? <laughs> but I got past it. I was my higher self while I was reading it. <laughs> but um, – 
yeah, I think there you can't go wrong with with all the authors we've mentioned tonight. I think you can't go wrong with having any of those uh, in your early childhood service. Um, but we. We, God, we could spend hours and hours talking about this, couldn't we? And we thought this might be a quick one, but there's, there's no way it can be. But did we want to pivot to making a recommendation for a book for educators? What should be on every, every educator's bookshelf? Well, look, I, I stuck to the rules with this, although I, <laughs> Me too. I felt like I had gone against the rules otherwise. Um, and I've gone back to a very old favourite, um, which was written by Jim Greenman, who was a, an educator in the States, and people will know his name. And um, he wrote a book called Caring Spaces, Learning Places. Hold on. I will get the full title of that book because that's not all it is. It's called Actually, that's wrong. It is called Caring Spaces, Learning Places. <laughs> and I think this was a book that when it, he wrote it in the 80s and it for me it was the um, quintessential book which taught me about loose parts. It talk, taught me about beautiful environments for children that were beautiful because they were engaging, not beautiful because they were, um, you know, state-of-the-art or, or mm-hmm. any of those things. Expensive. Yes, he was He was the original sort of, you know, if this place, if you've gathered all your materials from 45 different places and you're in a junkyard in New York, then you're in heaven. You know, it was really, it was really that. And um, it, the, an extract from it which he laid out or this extract, extract actually lays out um, what children need and his uh, mantra was that children need an environment rich in experience, they need a childhood rich in play, they need a childhood rich in teaching, they need a childhood rich with people, they need a childhood rich with nature and they need a childhood where they are significant and they need places to call their own. Wow. And it goes on and it is, it's just a, a wonderful book. I just remember it being a bit of a game changer for me in terms of my early childhood practice. Sadly, he died in 2009, um, but he was very prolific and he did amazing stuff. And, and I think he wrote um, books with Anne Stonehouse as well. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so uh, if you can get your hands on that, I know it's it's been reprinted in 2007 um, and you can get that from the Child Care Information Exchange and it really is worth a read because he was a, a wonderful, wonderful practitioner and writer. Well, it sounds like he had a – it's almost like a manifesto for, for what's best for children. Just that. Yeah, It'd be great to put that in front of politicians. Was, he was always willing to reflect on the mistakes that he made as well because <laughs> I heard him speak a number of times. I think he, he came over for the Early Childhood Australia Conference and he, he – um, he would say, you know, we thought we needed to get Duralex glasses that were the small ones because that was appropriate to children's size and then we realised that the kids were knocking them all over and we were just being idiots thinking if we downsized everything it would be fantastic. You know, he just was really about um, that whole sort of co- children are competent so let's not treat them like they need things downscaled <laughs> or, or whatever. He, he, he was a real advocate for that. And I, I just it was very powerful in my um, early childhood thinking. Well, it sounds like he's left an amazing legacy. Mm, he has. What about you? Well, I've probably I've come from a similar way of view, which is a book that was a bit of a game changer for me, but in a slightly different area. I wanted to. Um, I think one of the things we talk about, probably bluntly, one of the reasons we set up this podcast was we wanted discussions of sort of policy and politics to be uh, more prevalent in the sector. We, I'd, I would love it if, you know, educators and teachers were having political discussions about, you know, the, the insanity of early childhood policy 
uh, each and every day. I don't think we'd have the jobs for families package uh, in July 20, 2018 if that was the case. So I wanted to put a book that sort of really sort of set me on that track and really got me thinking about politics and policy. And it's called uh, Children's Chances, How Countries Can Move from Surviving to Thriving. And it's by Jody oh, Heyman yes. and Kristen yep. McNeil. Uh, it is, look, it, it's uh, it's not necessarily, it's quite a dense book. It, it's very policy and data focused, but it's also really well written. And it really gave me an idea of how policy, particularly in the birth to five space, can dramatically uh, have an impact on children's lives. And it, and it does it in a really interesting way by telling sort of stories and case studies from a range of different countries. But uh, it it tells a pretty amazing international story about child development and how, uh, as it sort of says in the book, national action laws and public policies fundamentally shape children's opportunities. Uh, it really made me it, it really changed the way I think about the work I do because the work we do in early childhood education uh, – is really strongly practice focused around teaching and education. It absolutely should be, but it's not divorced from this context of uh, the bigger picture about how children, as a society, how we how we help children grow and develop. So it's still sitting on my bookshelf, and I actually pick it up every now and then and and have a look through. It's um. And what's your favourite chapter in that book? Oh God, you're going to put me on the spot now. I don't. I'd have to go and track it. Or do down. you like the you like the case studies? I love the case studies. I love yeah. when they're actually talking about particularly um, countries that were that had appalling statistics on particularly things like child mortality. So even bringing it back from you know just even better early child education systems, which is what the fight we're having in Australia. But these ideas of um, you know incredibly high child mortality rates and really simple and effective solutions to fixing that, that we can actually do really innovative and, and things that support uh, particularly children and, and young mothers um, to, to just succeed and, and thrive. It, 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 it's sort of, it's, it, 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 it's also, it's very easy to become negative about advocacy and policy in the sector. It, it's a reminder that good things can happen and we just need to have the political will to do so. Yeah, and, and feel um, that politics has a role as well and that, that everything, actually everything is political. Absolutely. Everything is political. political. <laughs> From what, what you eat in the morning to what you what you put on, all of those things. And I think that, that's, that we shouldn't shy away from that. So I think that's a fantastic recommendation, Len. Yeah. Well, that's, look, that's probably a bit of a good segue to land to um, – I think we wanted to have a really quick chat. And look, again, this could probably be a whole episode, but um, that, you know – Children's books are political as well, um, and that there are political themes. And you know, I talked about with Sean Tan's work that yeah. it's very much focused on uh, injustice and 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 issues of social justice for 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 humans. But um, you know, what are you know what what are some examples of of some of those political themes that you see in 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 books we we read to children? Well, I think that really it comes back to the. The point that everything is political. So I think, you know, even in well, both of our recommendations are either overt, overt, or or they're sort of implicit, um, implicitly political. You know, things like my princess smarty pants is about feminism. <laughs> it's about feminism. Um, the way that we see people, uh, you know, the the othering of people as well comes through in a lot of the Bob Graham books. Yeah. Um, as well. And I mean, I don't think we should ever shy away from political themes in books. And I think if if families, 
I think families are very happy for those themes to come through. But if they, if it's important to discuss it as well, because I think that this is the sometimes the first kind of touch point of, of politics is in children's books, and I know that there are sometimes issues around books that have overt political themes. Mm. Yeah. But I don't really understand why. <laughs> I've never understood why people object to any book that has an overt political theme because I don't think children are ever too young to be introduced to concepts around power or around equality, yeah. which is what it's all about after all, isn't it? Yeah, and I think the most obvious one I can think of was, um, and I can never, I can't remember exactly when it was. It was quite a while ago now, but um, I think Play School had the where they read the story. Was it My Two Mummies or something? I can't yeah. remember what it was called. Yeah, but I think that's right. Yeah. Made national headlines was you know, and and it, I, I agree. I mean, I, I mean, I kind of know why, but the, it requires a whole <laughs> a whole other episode to go through. But the idea that there are children. In those situations, so the idea of being scared that a book about reality is is being read to children can scare someone. I, it is it is mind boggling to me. But then we're in a country where we're having a, a survey to see whether people can get married or not. So yeah. I think Australia's got a lot of thinking to do, which has brought out the worst, but of a lot of people. But in a way, actually, I, I mean, I'm shocked by it. But in a way, okay, let's look at it and see what this, see how much more we need to do. And in actual fact, how much more we need to do starts in early childhood with um, yep. exposing, ex- not exposing, engaging children with political themes. And I think if people complain about political books, then we might want to remind um, people of Dr. Zeus, who <laughs> has... Yep. All of his books were political. All of them were about power. Um, and some of the, the titles even, you know, that we can rattle off are things like um, The Lorax, which was about the environmental movement um, and about Yertle the Turtle. Yertle the Turtle. Yeah, A crazy elected dictator with ridiculous hair. Certainly not not um, not useful for our current times in countries like the United States at all at the moment. No, there's and, nothing we can learn from Yertle the Turtle. No, nothing at all. And do you know that was actually removed from schools, that book? Because really? It, uh, yes, because it upheld children's rights. There was a concern that it was upholding children's rights. And... <gasps> um, I know, it's just shocking, isn't it? And Megan Mitchell always quotes the, the um, you know, I know up on top you are seeing great sights, but down here on the bottom we too should have rights. And the very last line, which is, um, and the turtles are free as turtles and maybe all creatures should be. Yes. And and so, look, those, those political themes have been there. And actually, in some of his later books, he just he, he just forgot to even cover anything up. So there were a couple <laughs> like, Marvin K. Mooney, will you go please now? Will you please go now? Which apparently was a message for Nixon, who resigned shortly thereafter. <laughs> and one that was called The Butter Battle Book, which was about the Cold War. So he really, like, he just didn't bother even He lost the filter towards the end. He just went, look, you know, clearly people are not getting the message. He'd earned but, it by then. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, Dr. Seuss is a part, was a part of everybody's life who is now objecting two books that have a theme. <laughs> so it's the same people who are, you know, the same people who got free tertiary education who have cut. Um, That's right, exactly. It's actually the same people. But I, I, I think rather than look for books that are um, 
you know, that are not political, I reckon go for it because really everything is. Everything is. I can only add my strong agreement. Well said, Leanne. Well, that was a great discussion. I will look forward to doing a similar one. Uh, we'll have to wait till next year for Lisa to give her uh, her favourite authors and her recommendations. Yeah, because I know she'll have a number of She'll have a few. Yes, definitely. <laughs> but uh, we'll stay with us while we have another quick break and then we'll be back with our recommendations and our wrap-up. So just hang on a sec. All right, welcome back. So it'll just be the two of us giving our recommendations for you to, to peruse and to read in this uh, this week that encourages reading. So, Leanne, what are you bringing us this week? Well, this one is obviously in the um, children's uh, book theme, and I have just selected one, which is a brief history of children's picture books and the art of visual storytelling. And this one originally appeared in The Atlantic. I think that might be the record. That, that might be how I put it up there, and it's um, it just gives that that background and the the history and shows that it's been around for a really long time. Although they did say that the first picture book was written 130 years ago, whereas I did find Ooh. that the first picture book was actually written in 1658. Oh, you and might send in a correction, a letter to well, the editor. Yeah, but it was written. What I love is that that it was written by someone who was a teacher and who wrote on educational theory. And his oh. name was Jan Kaminsky. And oh. he was, um, yeah, so he created this book that actually was Animal Sounds and it's beautiful pictures, beautifully crafted pictures. But that's not actually in my recommendation, so I won't go into that. <laughs> but, yes, I, I encourage people to read this very interesting history of um, of children's books, uh, picture books and the art of visual storytelling. It is fantastic. I add my strong recommendation to it. It's really – it's it's actually – it's fascinating reading the development of of um, that style of storytelling. It's really interesting. Um, and mine, this quickly, is from uh, the from Politico magazine, which was a bit of a surprise for early child education, but it tells the story in San Antonio. Antonio, how a mayor there has really pushed for uh, some pretty significant funding of what they call pre-K, so uh, uh, preschool education essentially, and and it's a bit of a movement in the US at the moment where there's sort of sort of stagnation at the federal level for, for policy moving on this is that individual states and individual cities are actually moving forward. We we talked quite a while ago about New York doing something really similar, but this is a really fascinating. It is quite a long article, so this is one where I'd probably grab a cup of tea and then settle in for a bit of a read. But it really goes into the sort of background around the uh, political manoeuvrings around getting that done, which may not be of, of interest to anyone, but but probably you, me, and Lisa, Leanne. But yeah, no, it's it's a great piece, and I'm, I do admit I had a cup of tea with that. So yes. <laughs> but I think the reason I want to recommend it is it's that. Uh, the struggles are a bit different in Australia. We have obviously a very different system and a bit of a different sort of cultural approach, but it does sort of say that those things can be overcome and often it requires a bit of a, a bit of a breakthrough approach rather than trying to uh, necessarily negotiate around the edges. So uh, I think there are definitely lessons to learn for Australia from that one. So check it out. But we're done for another week. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We, Lisa, I think, will be back on board next week. We, uh, Before we go, there's a couple of big reminders for everyone. We were planning to announce the winner of our book competition for the win- for the copy of Fair's Fair, um, but we thought it would <laughs> we probably wouldn't be fair, ironically enough, for Lisa not to be here to announce that winner. So we're going to extend that another week. So Given that she's actually – I think she's even donating this she book. Is. So, really. <laughs> she really needs to be here. So we'll yeah, announce that next does. week. 
link and you can still enter. So just make sure you head to our Facebook page in particular and just comment on the appropriate post if you just scroll down a little bit. Um, and, and if you can include a photo of your service, there have been, been some fantastic ones coming through. I've been really enjoying it. Um, just a reminder, this is really exciting. We're having our first live show in November in Sydney. Uh, tickets are available. We've got an early bird deal for $20 until the beginning of November. So if you head to earlyeducationshow.com forward slash live, we'd, we'd really love to see a whole bunch of listeners there and and uh, and, and meet you all. And, and it's going to be a really fun night. We're all looking forward to and it. people have already bought tickets. I know. It's a bit shocking. So it's not going to be an empty room. It's not going to be an empty room. It won't just be our family. (laughs) That's right. I was looking forward to, you know, putting Annabelle and Elliot in, you know, stacking them on top of each other in a suit of pretend they were one of the listeners. But um, (laughs) so get onto that. We'd love to see a whole bunch of you there. And, you know, and it's one of the things that look, if it's popular, we'd love to go and do it in other places as well and go out to where the listeners are. Um, But uh, you can, as usual, you can get in touch with the show in a few ways. Head to our website is the easiest way, earlyeducationshow.com. You'll find all our old episodes, a listening guide if it's a particular topic you're looking for. Uh, But you can also click uh, the contact tab and you can flick us an email through that. Uh, While you're there, if you're feeling uh, like you're really enjoying the show, it'd be great if you could hit support the show. And that'll take you to Patreon where you can support the podcast for as little as $1 a month, which really helps us do some more fun and exciting things. Uh, You could also leave a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store if you have one of those newfangled eye devices. Uh, That really helps bump us up the rankings and means other early childhood professionals can find the show. Uh, You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Early Edu Show on both of those platforms. And you can find uh, all three of us uh, individually on Twitter. So I'll I'll do Lisa's because she's not here. You can find her at Lisa J. Bryan and she has significantly more followers than both of us. So maybe don't follow her and maybe just follow Leanne and I. So you can find me. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes we need to be maybe a little bit more active, perhaps. That Possibly. Be, We're not on there as much as Lisa. if we tell people to follow us and we don't do anything, it might be a bit boring. That's not too good. I, I can post more cute children pictures, if that helps. That's about all I can <laughs> or do. Or, or Doctor Who links. That's really all I can <laughs> yes, do. That's right. Get a few fans. Absolutely. So you can find me at Liam McNicholas. And me at Leanne M. Gibbs 3. And we'll be back with you again next week. So until then, have a fantastic week in all the wonderful, amazing uh, work you do in early childhood education with uh, those very lucky children and families. Until next week, it's bye from me. And bye from me. 